The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John, in chapter 7 and verse 5, the fifth verse in the seventh chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. For neither did his brethren believe in him. But let me remind you of the context by reading these first five verses again. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence, and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou dost. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. These words, these five verses, bring before us what is, of course, the great theme unfolded everywhere in these four Gospels. It is this extraordinary and almost incredible tragedy of the way in which the Son of God was rejected and refused by mankind and eventually found himself crucified upon a cross on Calvary's hill. That is what we have here, but one example of that, one illustration of that, one facet of that, if you like. Now, this is, of course, the great problem, the thing that stands out everywhere and on the pages of these four Gospels. In spite of his gracious words, words such as men never spoke or had ever been heard before, in spite of his most wonderful works, his works of healing, relieving suffering and sorrow, his endless works of doing good and of kindness. In spite of all that, and in spite of the fact that he never did anybody any harm at all, and that no charge nor accusation could truly be framed against him, in spite of all this, it was his lot to encounter constant opposition, Constant criticism, hatred, malice, bitterness, and finally a great outcry that he should be crucified and put out of the way. Now, that is, I say, the terrible story, the tragic story that is unfolded everywhere in the pages of the four Gospels. And this is but an instance of it. That is the treatment he received. And let us remember, because it does heighten the sense of tragedy, that he received it from the Jews, his own people. John puts this before us, of course, in the very introduction, in the very prologue to this gospel, when he says, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. His own things, the world that he'd made, his own people, according to the flesh, the Jews. It was they he walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill him. 
We know, of course, about the enmity between the Jews and the Gentiles, and the Gentiles and the Jews. So if he had received this treatment from the Gentiles, we wouldn't be so surprised. But what we are told is that this is the treatment he received from the Jews. And here, of course, to make the tragedy still greater, we find that he received this treatment from his own brothers, from those who were born from the same mother as himself, Mary. And that is why I'm emphasizing this verse in particular. For neither did his brethren believe in him. These who had been born of the same mother, brought up in the same home, who'd lived with him day by day. They didn't believe in him. They were opposed to him. They were against him. And of course, the Gospels also show us that even his own disciples, who were nearest to him and who had indeed followed him, even they from time to time stumbled at what he did or what he said. And finally, in the hour of his greatest need, they all forsook him and fled away from him. Now that is, I say, the thing of which we are here reminded. This verse that we are looking at together, this fifth verse in this seventh chapter of John's Gospel, provides us with the key to the understanding of that tragedy, and that's why I'm calling your attention to it. Here we are given the explanation of the attitude of his own brothers towards him. This is why they spoke to him as they did on this occasion, because, as John says, they did not believe in him. It was their unbelief that was responsible for their attitude. But at the same time, this verse not only gives us a key to the understanding of this opposition to him, but it does at the same time hold before us very plainly and clearly what is the great positive principle that is emphasized everywhere in the whole of the New Testament. And that is belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's here in a negative form, as I'm going to show you. For even his brethren did not believe in him. There it is, it's put negatively, but the positive thing it's saying is this, that the one thing that matters is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, anybody who is at all familiar with the Gospels must know that. This is the thing that is emphasized everywhere, from the beginning of the New Testament right until the end. All the great promises in the New Testament are the result of believing in him. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the greatest promise of all, everlasting life. How do we have everlasting life? Well, by believing in him. And I could quote scriptures to you almost endlessly, teaching us and reminding us of exactly the same thing. You can't name me a single great promise anywhere in the New Testament, but that you will find that it is received on condition that we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the key to all the great promises. But in the same way, you will find this. Wherever you meet a soul in the New Testament that is in trouble, 
Wherever you find a man or a woman troubled about sin, troubled about life, troubled about death, not knowing what to do and becoming somewhat desperate, you will always find that the relief that is given to them is always in terms of this, belief on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you two notable examples. You remember the Apostle Peter preaching at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. There he is, he's just been filled with the Spirit, baptized with the Spirit as the others, and he's preaching this great gospel. And men and women suddenly shout out and say, Men and brethren, what shall we do? The answer Peter returned was this, Repent every one of you, and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. That's believing in him. Or take another obvious example. Take the case of the Philippian jailer. Here is a man who suddenly finds the prison doors open and all the prisoners he thought had gone. He takes out his sword. He's about to kill himself in desperation. The apostle Paul calls out to him and says, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. And then we are told that the men came trembling and fell down before them and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Do you remember the answer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And thy house. To all distress of soul. To all agony of spirit. To every need which the human heart ever realizes. And when it cries out for help, this is the universal answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And thou shalt be saved. And in the same way. The great warnings, the great threatenings which are to be found in the New Testament are also all in exactly the same terms. Listen to this. He that believeth in him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You see, this is the thing that is finally responsible for a man's condemnation. Our Lord himself said it, you know, in that parable of his of the two sons, whose father asked them to go and work in the vineyard. He summed it up and he put it like this. He said, John came in the way of righteousness preaching unto you, and ye received him not. The publicans and the harlots, he said, believed him. And ye, when he had seen it, repented not afterward that he might believe. What finally condemns the soul to all eternity is failure or refusal to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the book of Revelation tells us that at the end there will be certain people who are outside. Who are they? Well, it gives us a list of the things that are true among, about them. And here is one of them. The unbelieving. The unbelieving. It is those who have not believed the truth concerning this blessed person who find themselves shut out outside the life and the love of God. Very well then, I think you'll agree with me when I say that the most important thing in life is to discover what it is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. What's it mean? What is it? What does it represent and connote? Well, there are many ways of answering that question. And there are many ways in which it is answered in the New Testament itself. But the way we're going to follow tonight is this. It's a negative approach. 
And sometimes the negative is as valuable as the positive, and even more so. What is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? I'll answer it like this tonight. It is the opposite of unbelief. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Here's unbelief. What is belief? The exact opposite of this. So then, as we analyze the case of these brothers of the Lord, as we analyze it into its component parts and see the characteristic features and causes of unbelief, we shall, as it were, be looking at belief positively. It's the exact opposite of this unbelief that is delineated and traced and analyzed in such a perfect manner in this little paragraph that we're looking at together tonight. Let me make it quite plain before we proceed with our analysis that this is no abstract or theoretical consideration. This isn't something that you consider intellectually. Say, oh, now this is going to be interesting. What is belief? What's unbelief? No, no, my friend, you can't afford to take it intellectually or in an abstract way. As I've just been reminding you, your whole life depends upon understanding this question. Your enjoyment of life in the here and now. Your happiness about facing the future. Your ability to face death without fear. Your whole eternal future depends upon your understanding and my understanding of what is meant by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. I therefore make no apology for asking the obvious question before we proceed any further. Do you believe in him? Do you know that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you amongst the believers, or are you like these brothers of his who didn't believe in him? Very well, then, let us proceed to analyze this picture of unbelief that is given us in these five verses. I take first this principle. The manifestations of unbelief. It's a very good thing always to start with a general examination. And I'm going to confine the examination this evening solely to the case of these brothers of the Lord who are depicted in this paragraph. These are the characteristics of unbelief that are always present. And I do beseech you in the name of God to examine yourself as I bring out these points one by one. You can know for certain before this service is over whether you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ or not. And I say on that impinges and hangs and depends the whole of your future from this moment in this world and in the world to come. Now then, listen to the characteristics of unbelief. The first thing that always characterizes it is a misunderstanding of the Lord. You see, these brothers of his, they're in trouble. Our Lord, it had become the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. And they thought that our Lord would go straight up to Jerusalem, but he didn't. He was staying there still in Galilee. And they didn't understand this. Misunderstanding of him and of his conduct and of his behavior. You know, there are people like that, and you know many of them, don't you? They read the Bible, as those of us who are Christians read the Bible, and these people are always in trouble. They can't understand this or that. Why this and why not that? Misunderstanding. That's never true of a man who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let me expand that a little. The unbeliever always has problems and difficulties. Every time I say he goes to the book and he reads it, 
Well, he can't understand this. Now, if it's right to say that there, how does it say this here? Always full of questions and problems. Many of them, of course, are repeated. They're just the stock questions, the catch questions, the inconsistencies, the failure to reconcile this with that. Problems and difficulties. These men were full of it. The unbeliever is always full of it. You know, a man really tells us all about himself by his remarks. There's no need to question people very much. The only thing we need to do is to listen to them. You know, the man who comes along and says, well, of course, I'm not anti-Christian, you know, but you see, my difficulties... And I at once know exactly what his position is. You never hear a believer speaking like that, never. The unbeliever is always encompassed and surrounded by problems and difficulties. Can't understand this, can't work out that. Ah, but unfortunately it doesn't stop at that. Unbelief is always characterized by a spirit of disputation and indeed of criticism. Did you notice it here in the case of these brothers? His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret and himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. You see, they're arguing with him now, and indeed they're they're criticizing him. They say, look here, you're utterly inconsistent with yourself. You want, at one moment, give the impression that you want to have a great following of people. You set yourself up as a teacher. You do miracles to attract people. You seem to be wanting publicity. Now, here's a heaven-sent opportunity, the Feast of Tabernacles at Jerusalem, when everybody will be going up. And instead of rushing up and being there to receive the people as they come, you're hanging about here in Galilee. Now, they say, you're not logical. You're not consistent with yourself. You see, any man, they say, that seeketh to be known doesn't do things like this in secret. You're up here in Galilee with just a handful of poor people round and about you. Now, what is it you really want? Why don't you act in a consistent, full of criticism? They dispute with him, they argue with him. They're full of criticism of him. But you know, it even goes further than that. They adopt a position of superiority with respect to him. They're really condemning him. They're telling him what he ought to do. Did you not notice how it began? His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea. They're ordering him. They're telling him the right thing for him to do. They're indicating to him what his conduct should be. They don't hesitate to take to themselves, to arrogate to themselves such superiority of understanding and of insight that they can tell the Son of God what he ought to be doing. That he's not doing the right thing. He ought to be doing this other thing. And they command him to do it. Well, now I put it in that form because that's the way to analyze the actual statement. It isn't very difficult to apply all this to many a modern man, is it? Isn't this precisely what we find men and women still doing? That's what every unbeliever does. He sits back, as it were. He's the juryman. Who's on trial? Jesus of Nazareth. They look down upon him. 
They're the critics, they're the judges, they're the estimators. They look down upon him from some superior position of knowledge gained in the 20th century. And they're looking down upon him and they don't hesitate to criticize him and say what he ought to be doing and what he ought not to do. Those are the superficial manifestations of unbelief. Are you examining yourself, my dear friend? You know the very way in which we approach this subject is indicative of our position. The man who believes is a man who pays heed to the exhortation given even to a man like Moses in the Old Testament. There you remember at the burning bush. His first instinct was to turn aside and to investigate and to examine the voice came and said, Take off thy shoes from off thy feet. For the ground whereon thou standest is holy ground. There is a reverence in the approach of the believer. You'll never find it in the unbeliever. That's why partly he is an unbeliever. He doesn't realize what he's doing. He's complete. He's the modern man, fully equipped with understanding. What's this? Something that he's going to judge and analyze. Even the one who claims to be the son of God. He's on judgment. And the modern man is the critic and the judge. Let every man examine himself. Those are the manifestations of unbelief. But come, let me take up a second principle. What are the causes of unbelief? They're all displayed very perfectly in these five verses. Of course, fundamentally, the cause of unbelief is spiritual blindness, spiritual deadness. You heard that announcement about Ephesians 2. Well, it's all there in the first three verses of Ephesians 2. You with he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, dead. You know, this little paragraph brings that out very clearly, doesn't it? What is it that enables a man to believe? Oh, says someone, perhaps it is that you belong to the same nation. The Jews didn't believe. Ah, says somebody else, perhaps that it's necessary that you belong to the same family and that you have intimate contact with him. Many a man has often said that. Many a man has said, you know, it's very difficult for us just reading these scriptures to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know, says the man, I have a feeling that if I'd only been alive when he was here on earth, if only I could have seen him, if only I could have looked into his face and into his eyes, if only I could have heard his gracious words, if only I could have seen his miracles, if only I'd been a direct spectator, I believe I would have believed in him. But he seems so remote. He's hidden in the words. Don't fool yourself, my friend. Here were his own brothers, brought up in the same home, who'd come out of the same womb, who'd been brought up in the same family. They didn't believe in him. No, no. This is a spiritual matter, this. This is not a question of nationality. This is not a question of consanguinity. This is not a question of proximity. No, no, it's not a matter of ability. It's not a matter of brains, nor of intellect, nor of understanding. I'll tell you what it is. It's one thing. It's the spiritual faculty. It's the capacity divine. No man believes in him unless he's been given new life and the ability to believe. Here were men in the most advantageous position and they didn't believe in him. That's the fundamental cause. 
But that fundamental cause manifests and displays itself in a number of ways. And these details are a little bit important. Because, you see, we've got to correct these detailed failures before the fundamental thing can be put right. So I analyze it like this. Why didn't these brothers believe in him? And the answer, first and foremost, is because they didn't start with him himself. What you mean, says someone, I mean this. They started with the things he was doing and with the things he said. They didn't start with him himself. Neither did his brethren believe in him, for neither did his brethren believe in him. I'm going to show you later that believing in him always means knowing who he is. And they didn't. They were wrong about who he was. And because they were wrong there, they were wrong everywhere else. Here is the most important principle of all. Most people who don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ go wrong at this point at the very beginning. They fail to realize that they've got to start with the blessed person himself. They don't do that. They start with his teaching. Or they start with his miracles, his works, his actions, what he said, what he did. And they continue along that line. And the whole time they've been missing him. Now here is a tremendous principle which is of the extremest importance for us. You cannot understand what he says and what he does without being clear about his person. That is the real message of this paragraph. If you are not clear about his person, you cannot possibly understand what he did and what he said. He himself is the only explanation of what he taught and what he did. Now, this was the most frequent cause of trouble of all that we are given in these Gospels. Let me show you some of them by illustration. Here you see are his brothers. Now they say, well, what's he mean? What's he mean by staying here up in Galilee? He ought to be in Jerusalem. You remember what he said the other day, but now what he's doing now, he doesn't tell you with what he said. He's worked these marvelous miracles, and yet here he is staying up here. Why doesn't he go up there and work a miracle that will arrest the whole world? What is the matter with him? Why are they in trouble? Why do they feel that he's inconsistent and illogical and contradictory? What's the matter? Ah, they don't know who he is. If they only knew who he was and why he'd come into this world, they'd begin to understand it all. They'd have the key, as it were, to the jigsaw puzzle. This, I say, was a very common cause of men's misunderstanding of him. We are given an illustration in this very chapter. Did you notice it in the reading? The Pharisees, you see, were very troubled and they said, How hath this man learning, having never learned? That was their problem. They say he sets himself up as a teacher. But now they say, and, and, and we've heard what he's got to say, but they say, how hath this man learning, having never learned? Do you see the fallacy? Do you see the trouble? What they ought to have argued was something like this. Here is a man uttering strange statements, speaking as an authority, as a teacher. But he's only a carpenter. And you see, they said that and stopped it. That they said, this is nonsense, therefore this is a usurper. This is a blasphemer. Who is this fellow? Oh, 
what thoroughly bad logic. The right way would have been this, wouldn't it? Now here is this man who's but a carpenter, as we know, and uninstructed. And yet he's saying extraordinary things. He's speaking with a strange authority. How does he do it? How has he managed it? We've been in the schools. It's taken us years in our universities to get to this position. Here is a man without any training at all who speaks as one of us and even goes beyond us. What is this? Who is he? That's the right line. They never did that. You see, they stopped with his words, with his actions. They never allowed these things to lead them to the person himself. And that was the cause of their trouble. Indeed, I say this was ever the cause of the trouble. Look at his death upon the cross. The Jews looked at that, and they stopped at his death upon the cross, and they said, ah, here's a man who claimed so much, and yet here he is dying in weakness. Now they didn't take the trouble to analyze it and examine it all and see whether there was some grand reconciling principle that would take it in altogether. No, no, the cross was a stumbling block to them. And likewise it was foolishness and folly to the Greek. Why? Well, because they never considered the person. All they saw was this, that here was a Galilean carpenter who set himself up as a great teacher, one who could instruct the philosophers. And yet they say the thing is monstrous because he died on a cross. Now, they should have gone on to say, well, how can we explain these things? His teaching was indeed remarkable. Is there any way whereby we can reconcile that teaching with that death? They didn't do that. They never considered the person. And that is still the most fruitful cause of unbelief in the minds and hearts of men and women this evening. My dear friend, let me ask you a question. Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, it's more than likely that if you don't, you don't, because you've just started with his teaching and stopped there, or have looked at some other aspect of him and stopped there. You've never faced him, the person himself. John, therefore, in his gospel, gives us the key. Why did his brothers behave like this? Here's the answer. For neither did his brethren believe in him. He himself is the key to all that he did. He himself is more important than what he said or than what he did. He is the key to everything. Well, there's the first cause of their unbelief. Let me hurry to the second. The second was, and I've been hinting at it in a sense, that they didn't take him as a whole. They looked at certain parts of him and certain aspects of his life and left out the others. Now, you notice that these brothers of his do grant that he's working miracles. They say there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, they admitted that he did them. He'd been working miracles in Galilee. They say, if you do these things... Show thyself to the world. Go up to Jerusalem and do them and eclipse them all by some mighty demonstration of your power. Now here, you see, was their trouble. They were looking at this side of him only, but then he began to show another side. Oh yes, there was a side about Jesus Christ which courted publicity, invited the people to come, did arresting miracles as signs in order to attract them. But there was another side to him. A side that made him go away when he saw a crowd coming. A side which made him say to a man who he'd healed, don't tell anybody about it. Go and show yourself to the priest, but say nothing. 
A sight to him which when the people came crowding to him after he'd worked the miracle of feeding the five thousand, he pushed them away and went up himself into a mountain alone. And here he is, you see, keeping away in the quietness of Galilee and the north of the country instead of going down to the great feast at Jerusalem. They look at one side, they don't look at the other, and they're therefore in trouble. Now here again I say is something that was constantly recurring in the attitude of men and women towards him. Because of this, they felt that he was inconsistent. Do you remember the people who jeered at him when he was dying on the cross? Oh, they said, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it again in three days. Come down from the cross. Others he saved himself. He cannot save. And you see, it seems to be wonderfully logical, doesn't it? You've caught him out on an inconsistency. He who claims so much, why is he dying in weakness? He who can do everything, why can't he save himself? Doesn't it seem plausible? Doesn't it seem wonderful? Yes, you see, but it's entirely wrong. Why? Well, it's looking at one side and not being able to take in the other and see the wholeness and the grand consistency. Oh, that was always the trouble, and it has continued to be the trouble with men and women in unbelief ever since. Read the history of the church. Read the story of the early heretics and their heresies. What were they? Well, some of them taught that he was only a god, left out the man. Yes, but others said he was only a man, left out the god. Go through the list of the heresies and you'll find that they inevitably arose because they only took one side of him and left out the other side, exactly like his brothers did on this occasion. And you know, my dear friends, it is still the same this evening. There are many people who don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because they look at him and see nothing but the prophet. Of course he was a prophet. Yes, but they see nothing but the prophet. They see nothing but a teacher. Social teacher, political teacher, ethical teacher, a teacher. And they see nothing else. But there are other things in him and they ignore them. They're not interested in them. But there are others who see nothing in him but the priest. They're out for healing, bodily healing. They want a little bit of comfort and happiness. The things that attract people to the cults. And they come to Jesus because they think he's going to give. They see nothing but a priest in him, a super healer. There are others who see nothing in him but the king. That's the whole trouble with the Roman Catholic Church, you see. They see the king in Christ, and he's such a great king that you have to have the Virgin married between him and yourself, and she'll take you to him, and she'll plead with him for you. She, as his mother, is going to get round him, as it were, for you. They've banished him into the distance, some eternal distance, as a great monarch and emperor, the king only. Oh, I say this has always been the trouble. And it is still the trouble with men and women. There are many unbelievers that we all know this evening because they fail to take him as he is and take him as a whole as he's depicted in the scriptures. There are some, you see, who are always emphasizing his gentleness. Gentle, Jesus, meek and mild. The Jesus, they say, who talked about turning the other cheek. The one who was love itself and was always so gentle and tender and long-suffering and compassionate, the one of whom we read that he raised not his voice, the smoking flax he will not quench, the bruised reed he will not break. That's Jesus, they say. 
But I say the same Jesus, making a whip out of cords, and driving certain people out of the temple, and dismissing them, and denouncing them. I listen to the same Jesus in Matthew 23, beginning a most terrible diatribe on the Pharisees, and saying, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you whited sepulchres. And these men are confused by this. No, no, they say, he's gentle Jesus, he's love. No, no, I hear him denouncing the Pharisees, but he doesn't stop at that, he taught about judgment. He spoke about Dives and Lazarus. It was he who told us about that rich man in the flame and the torment, saying, oh, send Lazarus to put just a little spot of water on my tongue in this flame. It was he who spoke about a gulf fixed and that no one could pass from hell to heaven. It was he who spoke about hell and judgment and about the place where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And they're in trouble. And they say they can't believe in him. And they get out of it in different ways. There are some who don't hesitate to say this. They say, we don't believe those other statements about him. I read a sermon by a man about a year ago and he said it quite plainly and openly. He said, how do I know Jesus of Nazareth? Well, he said, I know him as I know Long John Silver in the Treasure Island. I read the Treasure Island and there's Long John Silver. And I feel I know him. I understand him. I know what sort of man he was. And if I were told he'd done something different, I'd say it's wrong. And he said, it's like that with Jesus of Nazareth. I know him. Ah, yes, he said, but there are statements made about him in the Gospels, and I don't believe them. I don't believe my Jesus could say such things. I don't believe my Jesus could do such things. They reject the statements. They take parts of the picture and leave out the others. And there are others who try to solve the problem for themselves by saying that he was definitely wrong. That he was but a child of his own age, a creature of his own time, that he was ignorant in certain respects. And that because he lacked our knowledge and our great advance in the 20th century, he said these things which he wouldn't say if he were alive now. That's a second cause why people don't believe in him. They don't take him as he is. They don't come as little children to this book, to the four Gospels, and let them speak to them, and look at the portrait, and see him as he is, leaving nothing out, taking it as a whole. It's a terrible cause of unbelief, that. But there's another. And that is, of course, expecting the wrong things of him. I needn't stay with this. These brothers of his expected he should go up to Jerusalem and he didn't go and therefore they're in trouble. They said, what's he mean? He ought to be going up there and he ought to be declaring himself. Oh, they were not the only ones who fell into that error. There are many others in the same company. You will read in chapter 6 of this gospel, verse 15. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. They wanted to turn him into a king. Do you remember the man in Luke 12 who was listening to one of our Lord's greatest sermons and then suddenly broke in and said, Master, 
Speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. He wanted to turn him into an economist, into a politician, into a judge, into a kind of super solicitor. Poor John the Baptist, even he failed at this point. He sent his two disciples up to Jesus Christ and asked the question, Art thou he that should come? Or do we look for another? He said, in effect, you know, I thought at first, and when I baptized you in the Jordan, that you were the Messiah, but I'm beginning to doubt it. Why? Well, because he was spending his time in Galilee with a crowd of poor people and just preaching to them. Why didn't he go to Jerusalem? Why didn't he set himself up as a king? Why didn't he gather a great army and deliver them from this Roman yoke and tyranny? Why didn't he? Even John began to doubt. He wasn't doing what they thought he should do. That's a very fruitful cause of unbelief. And it is as common today as it has ever been. There are many who don't really believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, because they believe that he should be a politician. And that he and his servants should always be talking about these political and social problems. You know them, don't you? The bums. And the Asseland. And South Africa. Politics. This is it. He ought to be talking about these things. What's he mean by talking about salvation and some personal problem? With the world as it is. Why doesn't he do this? What's Christianity here for? And they don't believe. They reject it. He didn't do what his brothers expected him to do. And they didn't believe in him. It is still the same. But lastly, the cause of unbelief above all others is failure to realize the truth about him. What is it? Well, the first thing is this. Who is he? Look at these brothers of his. What was their trouble? You know, their trouble in the last analysis was just this. He thought, they thought he was one of them. Our brother. He calls our mother, mother. Same family, same home. Works under Joseph, as we do. He's one of us. Oh, that was the fatal blunder. They didn't see the mystery and the marvel of it all. Who is he? If he's but our brother, why is he able to work these miracles? Why does he speak as he does? Why is he so different from us? They never argued it out. They never followed it to its logical conclusion. If only they had, they would have discovered this. Yes, the same mother, but not the same father. Mother, Mary, certainly. Joseph, father, no. Conceived of the Holy Ghost. Born of the Virgin Mary. They didn't get it, you see. They didn't understand it. They thought he was but a man like themselves. And one of them, he's not. He is the eternal Son of God come from heaven to earth. 
He is the everlasting one, the creator of the world, the one, the word, the everlasting word, by whom all things were made, and without whom was nothing made that is made. Unbelief doesn't realize this. They're looking at him in terms of his teaching or his works, what he says, what he should do. They've never faced him. My friend of you faced it. Look at the person, I say. Forget everything. But this person, who is he? And there is only one category which is adequate to include him. He is the one who was once in the form of God, but has made himself of no reputation, and come in the form of a man. Yes, he is truly man. Yes, he is truly God. The one who looks but human is the divine, the eternal. He's hiding the glory for the time being and for a specific purpose. He's man. He's God-man. Man, God in the flesh. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The unbeliever doesn't see this. If he saw it, he'd take off his shoes. He'd bow with the knee. He'd stop criticizing. He doesn't realize what he's saying. Yes, and the second thing is this. He doesn't realize his purpose in coming into this world. Why did the Son of God come into the world? Was it just to reconcile nations with one another? Was it just to put an end to war? Was it just to solve the color problem? No, no. Those are things that follow. That isn't why he came. Why did he come? Well, he tells us. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. No, no, the modern unbeliever doesn't like it. Though he may call himself a Christian and even a Christian preacher, he doesn't like this talk about personal salvation. No, no, he says, deal with the great problems. I cannot deal with the great problems. Christ came to die for individuals. He came to save you, individual you, me, I, all of us as units. That's why he came. But the world doesn't understand it, neither did his brothers. And that's why they're critical. That's why he seems inconsistent. That's why they can't follow his actions. He came to save and to form a spiritual kingdom. He holds out no hope for the world. He doesn't promise universal peace until he shall come again and ruin what is in existence and condemn the world in righteousness and set up his everlasting kingdom. He's not a reformer. He's a savior. The unbeliever doesn't understand that. Neither does the unbeliever understand the way in which he does save. They thought that he'd save by giving some great manifestation of his power. Or by some new teaching, some new kind of law. What they didn't understand and the unbeliever doesn't understand today is this. That his way of saving is to become like a lamb. Innocent and helpless, led to the slaughter as a lamb. 
and in complete helplessness to die. That's his way of saving. To present himself as the Lamb of God and God to smite him and to strike him and to kill him. He came to bear our sins in his own body on the tree. They couldn't understand it. Others he saved himself he cannot save. If thou art the Son of God, come down from the cross. The blind fools, if he'd come down, they wouldn't have been saved. That's his way of saving. He knows what he's doing. He's consistent with himself and his whole program. Though the unbeliever doesn't understand his death, he regards it as a stumbling block, as folly and as weakness. There are the causes of unbelief. What is belief? It is the exact opposite of all that. What does the believer do? Oh, the first thing he does is to worship him. For he knows that he is the Son of God. That this is no mere man or human mentor or teacher or example. He is God. The first thing the believer does is what Thomas did. Doubting Thomas. He falls on his knees before him and says, My Lord. And my God. And he begins to understand him. He sees the unity of his person. Two natures, one person. He understands what he did and what he said. He doesn't see contradictions. The believer is not at all stumbled by the fact that he stayed up in Galilee instead of rushing up to to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. God willing, I'll explain what that means next Sunday night. The believer is not at all stumbled by his death upon the cross. He knows that he came from heaven to taste death for every man. That if he hadn't died, he couldn't save us. He's not perplexed. He understands it. He sees the whole scheme of salvation. He doesn't stumble at the incarnation. He knows that if he hadn't become a man, he couldn't have taken our sins upon him. It was essential as a part of the plan. So the believer, instead of being full of problems and difficulties and perplexities and saying, I can't understand this and why that, looks on it in amazement and astonishment and takes his stand with Paul and says, Great is the mystery of godliness. God hath appeared in the flesh, hath come in the flesh, preached, seen of angels, received up into glory. Great is the mystery, the plan of salvation, all so perfect. He sees it in this book from Genesis to Revelation, all fitting in, and he marvels at the plan. That's the believer. And so there is no discussion, no criticism. No giving advice, no making of suggestions. But a humble submission at his feet. And a readiness to rise up at his command and take up the cross. And to follow him. But above all, the reaction of the believer is this. He is filled with a wandering love. And a heart that is full of gratitude 
in thanksgiving that words cannot express. He is not perplexed. He is not critical. He doesn't feel that he's inconsistent. He doesn't tell him what to do and what not to do. He looks at him and says, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all, and he shall have it. He's given himself for me, the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. He loves him, and he wants to show him his gratitude, his thanksgiving, and his praise. My dear friend, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? You know exactly now, don't you? You've seen yourself in one of these two pictures. Which is it? Let me remind you again that if you persist in unbelief, you persist under condemnation, and you are finally without hope. Be not unbelieving. Forget all your prejudices, all your preconceived ideas and notions, Look at him, look at him. If only these brothers of his had looked at him. Oh, and let me say this. You know, they changed afterwards. You'll read that in the first chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, they were there in the upper room. His death and resurrection convinced them. They saw it then. They hadn't at this point, but later they saw it. And that can happen to you. Look at him as he is. Look at him as a whole. Forget what you think he ought to be. Take him as he is. And see that there's only one explanation of it all. He is the Son of God eternal. Come down into the world. Taking upon him human nature. He has come to die. That we might be forgiven that we might be reconciled to God. The Son of God became the Son of Man, that we, the sinful sons of men, might be made the sons of God. Realize that, look at then all the details in the light of that, and you'll find they'll all fit in perfectly. He knew exactly what he was doing. He worked out the plan that had been formed before the very foundation of the world. Look at him. Believe in him. Fall at his feet and worship him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Amen.